Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. You can listen to all our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Enjoy. How does self-interested action benefit the collective? Well, this is a question still discussed today in the tribalism of left-right political debate. On the one side, there are those who believe the good of the collective must supersede the interests of the individual, and the two cannot coexist. Slogans such as, for the many, not the few, exemplify this. Yet there are those who subscribe to the great liberal concept of Adam Smith's invisible hand. In short, the theory describes the unintended greater social benefits brought about by individuals acting in their own self-interests through voluntary action with individuals free to operate in an open market, unintentional and widespread benefits occur which cannot be brought about by central planning. An interesting question therefore arises from this crucial debate. Why do we care so much about the collective? Is it as simple as left versus right, Marxism versus capitalism? Or is there a deeper understanding to this issue? Professor Daniel Klein certainly thought so. In this episode of the IA podcast, I sat down with Daniel to discuss his article in the latest volume of the IA's academic journal, Economic Affairs, on Hayekian and a Hayekian theory of collectivist policies. Daniel is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He leads the Smithian Political Economy Program there, uh, and he is also um, the chief editor of Econ Journal Watch. Uh, Daniel, could you briefly summarise your article for our re- uh, for our listeners? You talk about the difference between gratitude, gratefulness as the basis of your distinction between resentment, resentfulness. Uh, how does this matter in relation to? Uh, the ideas of self-interest, which is the crux of your argument in the article. Sure. I read an interesting article in the Journal of Happiness Studies by Ruben Rusk and two other authors about gratitude and gratefulness, a conceptual review and proposal of the system of appreciative functioning but the center of their piece is a distinction between gratitude and gratefulness. Um, And this distinction I found very interesting um, and it made me think about a parallel distinction. Um, Gratitude is something, is an important word in Adam Smith, uh, whom I study and Smith couples gratitude with resentment. So when I read what they wrote about gratitude and gratefulness, I thought about a parallel distinction on the other side there. Um, so let me, let me start just with the distinction they give between gratitude and gratefulness. It made a lot of sense to me. Gratitude is in relation to a benefactor. You are grateful to someone when you feel gratitude. Um, Someone does you a good turn and you feel grateful to that person. So you feel gratitude towards that person. And that in fact moves you to 
kind of return good for good or benefit for benefit. So it's, it's grateful to, it's got a sense of grateful to someone, to a doer, to a benefactor. And then they say, then there's gratefulness. And they give an example of, I'm grateful for the warm sunshine. And what do we do with that? Um, did someone give us the warm sunshine? Now, uh, a theist will certainly say that God did give us the warm sunshine. But if we just kind of confine ourselves for now for to social relations, human beings, um, no, no one gave you the warm sunshine. Yet you can have a sentiment, gratefulness, that's a lot like gratitude in a kind of pleasure, appreciation, joy in having the benefits of here, the warm sunshine, just like when someone, Jim, does a good turn to you. And now the article very much promotes these feelings of great gratefulness and gratitude because good things flow for them, flow from them. You feel better about your life, your experience, and, and that's good. And then those positive feelings flow over to others, people you interact with, your family, your coworkers, and so on, because you're cheerful. Cheerfulness is, is a sort of virtue and a benefit to those around you and to yourself. So all of this is very positive. And then, of course, if you feel gratitude, you are returning good for good. And so people also benefit from the way you um, Recom recompense the benefit. So they, they're, they're very pro gratitude and gratefulness and talk about, you know, its importance in a understanding how people make themselves happy and cooperate, how things work, get things done, enjoy their life. Now, <clears throat> like I said, Smith sees resentment as something that's sort of the other side for of great gratitude gratitude is someone does you a good turn and you feel appreciative and you want to return it well resentment is someone giving you know doing you a bad turn harm injury and wanting to answer that as well so they're both kind of a returning uh, it's a returning emotion um kind of a reciprocity, you could say, but one is a positive exchange and one is a negative exchange. So then we can ask, <clears throat> okay, so that's resentment. What about resentfulness when you feel injured, but there's no injurer particularly to um, identify or blame really? Okay, so that so so that also is, I think, a pervasive emotion. People are angry at the system, they're angry at the world, um, they're angry at they're not quite sure what, but they feel like they have been slighted or injured. Um, so this is, I think, an important thing, um, and and naturally the negative side has consequences too. And they're negative, uh, much more negative. Not to say that there's not a function for resentment. There is a function for resentment, and Smith says so. 
but but there's also a lot of hazard with resentfulness or resentment, these negative feelings. <clears throat> um, let me dwell a little bit first on what some of those hazards are. Um, first of all, the feeling itself is unpleasant or disagreeable. So that in and of itself is a bad thing for the whole. But second, people who act on it, there's a number of ways in which it's asymmetric to the positive. One is that um, it's often easier to injure than it is to benefit someone. Um, and so it could be excessive, the injury that you return. Um, another thing is that injuries to the person to whom the injury is done are, are more pungent, Smith says, than benefits. There's a sort of asymmetry in losses versus gains. This is sometimes called loss aversion, um, where losses loom larger than gains. You know, we kind of build up our life and practices and habits. And when those get upset, it's kind of like, you know, you build a building. And if something goes wrong in your whole system, it can mess up, you know, the functioning of a whole lot of things for you. Um, and so and so it's a more pungent loss um, than if you gain something, you know, gains, new gains to your normal existence kind of have to first be integrated into it. And so they're not so precious to you at first. Um, it's only once they've been integrated into your way of life um, that you really feel so dependent and attached on them. So there's also this sense of asymmetry in terms of, you know, the effect of, uh, of uh, damage as compared to um, a benefit. How did Friedrich Hayek understand modern collectivist politics in, in, in this context? So, okay. We've got that. Now, all of this, I think, can be related to our current culture or modern politics. Um, and in this respect, I bring in Hayek's theory of modern collectivist politics. Hayek puzzled over why it was that, you know, people didn't didn't accept and um, promote the kind of political philosophy he favored and advanced. You could call it classical liberalism. And instead, um, <clears throat> were too collectivist and looked very much towards as policies and attitudes that spelled the governmentalization, bigger government um, of social affairs um, and, and so he sought an explanation for this. And the main thing he came up with was that we are still of the Paleolithic band. We are still upper Paleolithic, let's say of 10,000 BC, so say 12,000 years ago, where we lived in these little bands of say 40 people our genes have not changed that much since then. 
Uh, they've changed somewhat, but not very fundamentally. And he says that modern collectivist politics taps into things in our instincts and um, kind of panders to them in a, in a way trying to make the nation state now the top polity like the band, okay? So his theory of modern collectivist politics is that they're, they're getting people to kind of think or act like the state, you know, the nation state is like a big band. And in the band, <clears throat> there wasn't such an impasse because it's just 40 people. There wasn't such, there would never be such an impasse, at least in any kind of socially related affairs between um, gratefulness, I'm sorry, gratitude and gratefulness. And on the other side, resentment and resentfulness. What I mean is this, let's take the case of resentment. In a small band, let's say 40 people, if you and your family, you know, the band is basically just like a few families clinging together. But if your family, for some reason, doesn't get as much food, um, doesn't get as much shelter, gets more abuse, it really is a, a kind of like there's reasons for it. I mean, the leaders of the band, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the people with more influence and direction in the band, or even just the consensus of the band. I mean, it's just another 35 people. They are mistreating you. That is going against the normal ethic of a band and you are being mistreated. When you notice these um, differences in income and how much food you eat and comfort, shelter, whatever, um, it really is the result of identifiable people. You may not know exactly as soon as you feel it, but a little bit of investigation or pondering it and you can figure it out. It's just like in a family, you know, if someone, if, if, if a parent comes home or wakes up, uh, you know, the next day and finds a big mess in the kitchen, they may not know who exactly made the mess, but they might feel resentment or resentfulness toward the fact that there's a mess in the kitchen that they have to deal with. So they can't like, you know, empty the coffee pot and change it and everything because the sink's full of dirty dishes. They don't know which child, let's say, you know, did this, but they know that someone did and that they can figure it out. And so resentfulness and resentment get connected, are more naturally connected and tied together. And, and, and <clears throat> so that's fine when you can, you know, discipline your children so that they don't leave messes in the sink. You want that resentfulness to identify the wrongdoer and then turn into resentment and say, hey, you know, I want you to clean up your mess in the morning. This isn't right. That's how you discipline your kids. But in the modern world, all sorts of things you might observe and perceive as, um, you know, inequities, unjust injustices, because you have less, um, you have less um, wealth, you have less comfort, you have less influence, you have less popularity, you have less access um, to things that, you know, you would like to be part of or whatever the case may be, you might feel those now as resentfulness 
but there's not necessarily a resentment to be had. So this is dangerous. It's bad for, for the reasons uh, we said about the downside of the resent side of things. Um, and, and collectivist politics, Hayek suggests, is actually fueling these kinds of feelings. He says this quite explicitly. Um, and politicians are then playing upon it as though, you know, they, they're going to correct some of these perceived injustices. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I perfectly moves on to one of the questions I had for you. And I, I, I'm going to paraphrase what you, what you said in this is that democracy has become a vehicle for the organized allocation of resources based on the principle of the emotions of collectivism, uh, as you've sort of discussed there. Um, why does this emotion still exist in a modern society which we see has transitioned to a what we may call a liberal market society? Why do, why do these, the, these, these feelings or emotions still exist? Well, our, like I say, our genes are not that different. I mean, in other words, if you took a baby born 12,000 years ago and you know, just put it in London today and it raised it, it wouldn't be different um, or that different. Uh, I mean, it's a population matter, but um, it would fit in. And so the potentiality is there is still from the of the, the of the band child, you know, the small band child. And if they are being told and taught to think uh, in ways that gr kind of gratify and arouse, those kind of banned instincts rather than being taught, you know, civilizational codes about, no, you're not in the band anymore. And, you know, you can't expect everyone to know you and to love you. And you got to get used to quite impersonal interactions. You got to get used to um, differences uh, in society and differences in outcomes you've got to make your own life, you've got to find your own community and nest, you've got to build it for yourself, you know, to a great extent. I mean, of course, that means working with people so you don't do it all by yourself, but your community, your family, your friends and so on. Um, so you need, you need a civilization that tells people, teaches people uh, to, act in a way that's very different, very, very different than how people acted in the band. Uh, you know, in the band, <clears throat> as far as you were concerned, the only people who mattered were the people in your band, your, the other 40 people. No one else, everyone else was a stranger or an enemy. And, and, and you expected almost a kind of common experience among the ethical whole, the group. And that's not the way it is today at all. Um, <clears throat> in a number of enormous ways. Did you wanna ask something? Yeah, I was gonna say, is this sort of, from just came to my mind now, is, is, is this like the uh, Anne Rand's objectivism? Is this the, the opposite of essentially what you're describing of, of, of what the situation is now? Um, you mean the public political culture now is the opposite of an Ayn Rand kind of yeah. ethic? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be um, appealing or invoking Rand. I don't have too much, uh, re, you know, regard for her as as, as a moral philosopher. I, I'm thinking more about the arc of liberalism over many centuries in Western civilization, uh, and I, and you know, I see Adam Smith as the paramount figure of that. So I'm thinking more about the kind of culture that um, Smith advanced and favored. Um, and yeah, it's very, very different than life in the band. Hmm. I mean, we, well, are, let's, let's... we are fish out of water, but we've got to learn to live in this new world. I mean, let's stay on the philosophers. And, and you, you said in, in the article that there was a generalized resentfulness from philosophers such as Rousseau and Marx. Um, and I quote, who appeal to vestiges no longer suitable to modern life, as we've just discussed. I, I was quite interested. Does this mean that collectivists thought has beaten liberal ideas in, in, in certain ways, or is it just because it's popular? And of course, there's a difference there between being right and being popular. Yes, um, it's popular. And Hayek is in some ways explaining, trying to explain that popularity. He's saying that there was a lot of uh, latent potentiality for that to become popular as, as modern politics learned how to kind of draw people into it and to some extent just raise them and indoctrinate them into it, which is certainly happening in um, many, many of our institutions, our cultural institutions. Um, you know about the long march and about how leftists have taken over pretty much all of the cultural institutions and they favor attitudes, notions, slogans that I do think can, you know, go with this kind of politics, really, and, and teach people to think along those lines um, the, and exclude people if they don't call them dirty names and so on. So the latency, there was a latent hazard, I would call it, for this to develop uh, in the way that it has since the 18th century. Tocqueville was all over it. He saw it very clearly and warned of it. Um, so I think this fits him very well as, as well. Um, and Marx and, and uh, Rousseau, I almost think, were um, um, purveyors of it, actually. So they were, I think, pushing this development, this what I consider a bad development. Hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Rousseau and the general will is obviously very, uh, is, it is the good of the collective right. Um, yes, um, I'm not. I'm not against making the good of the whole supreme. I'm for that, and so is Adam Smith. We, you know, it, this whole arc of liberalism comes out of benevolent monotheism, um, and you know, God wants to see the good of the whole. God cares about all of uh, His children. That's the whole of humankind. 
um, so the, just the, the the notion, just the idea that Rousseau is concerned about the good of the whole is not really the problem. The problem is that he was very hostile to the liberal approach about how that is in fact advanced, um, about what the good of the whole is and what kinds of social arrangements conduce to it or promote it. I'd be interested in the 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 extension that I, when I read this in my in my mind was that is is democracy therefore a vehicle for these vestiges that you talk about? And if that is the case, how I mean obviously traditionally liberals have a, a more restricted idea of representative democracy. And we're not talking about the um you know, sort of lock and so forth. But if, if is democracy a vehicle for these things, and what is the the answer to that? Because it'd be almost impossible to sort of roll back the get around that. Um, I do think that mass democracy or universal franchise is very much part of the story about the decline of liberalism and the growth of government and this collectivist type of thinking in the last, let's say, 150 years, especially. Um, so I do think democracy is a key part of that narrative. Now, I don't want to equate by any means, democracy and the governmentalization of social affairs or collectivism, um, you might make a case that they sort of tend to go together. Um, although you could certainly have, you know, very undemocratic regimes that are highly, um, you know, totalitarian. Um, but so, it's, I don't think democracy, it, it, my attitude towards democracy is like the Tocquevilles. He said, this is sort of in our nature to have democracy playing a very large role in the process of this determining who's governing and how people govern, you know, how, how voters, the citizens have a say. Um, and we've got to make it work better rather than worse. And better is he's for a more liberal society, a classical liberal society. That's not necessarily incompatible with strong democratic institutions and a universalist type voting you know, base, suffrage. Um, but you could make the argument that um, the way things tend to go um, is that when you know, the, the, the wider democracy is, the more the bigger government gets and the more people favor attitudes that tend towards the governmentalization of social affairs. But you know, if that's where if that's what we're stuck with, that's what we've gotta we gotta work with and we've gotta, you know, make it less bad, as it were. Um, we've got to try to persuade our fellow voters uh, and citizens that, hey, look, use your political power to do what's best for the good of the whole. And what is that? Well, read IEA's literature. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that, that's all, that can all be part of a democratic system. 
part of this, I think, a part of the whole thing that um, may, perhaps merits mention. Um, let's go back to the gratefulness and the good, uh, the goodness of gratefulness. Um, we do want to promote that. And something I say in the article is that we actually need to have a kind of asymmetric attitude here between gratefulness and resentfulness. Resentfulness is trouble. Gratefulness is good. It may not make a lot of sense, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a positive thing. And I cite um, Donald Boudreau and Brian Kaplan and Jonah Goldberg, all of whom who express gratefulness for very broad things, a kind of generalized gratefulness. For example, Brian Kaplan writes about how grateful he is that he can go to the supermarket and get these wonderful products, you know, at, at very reasonable price. And so, you know, is that really a proper gratitude? I'd, I'd say not really. I mean, you know, the store is just making an exchange. Maybe their main interest is pursuing income and it's not really a beneficence that drives it. And beneficence is really what inspires gratitude. It's not just exchange. Um, and so, so in a sense, he doesn't really have someone to be grateful to when he talks about being grateful for the riches of the modern world. But do you want to discourage Brian Kaplan from feeling gratefulness? I don't. I don't. So we, we want to favor that, but on the other hand, someone who feels resentfulness towards the modern world, towards the system or whatever, we do want to discourage that. So there's a very real asymmetry here in our, in our values um, and, and what's useful. Uh, so we got we to gotta, um, recognize that when Hayek talks about modern collectivist politics as a kind of atavism, that's, that's a pejorative against collectivist politics. And so it's, he's saying that's bad and we shouldn't have the kind of resentfulness that's associated with it. But I don't think he would say that the gratefulness that Brian Kaplan feels is an atavism. It also doesn't make a lot of sense in the sense that it doesn't really cash out his gratitude but since it's not a bad thing, I don't call it an atavism. And atavism is pejorative. So you see, it's a kind of asymmetry here. Um, so I think it's good to be grateful. I think generalized gratefulness is a healthy thing. And I think we develop traditions and attitudes um, about it, even myths, you might say. Um, but we don't want to. We don't want to unleash that kind of generalized feeling on the negative side. Hmm. Um, do you think it, it perhaps is a misunderstanding of um, how self-interest can benefit the good of the collective? Is is that is that maybe a misunderstanding that people don't understand of Adam Smith's Invisible Hand because they don't see a motive? but there is unintentional benefits from each and every one of us acting in our own interests. Um, I do think that is a problem. Um, 
And so people don't appreciate why the pursuit of honest income is something to smile upon actually, because it does conduce to the good of the whole in the invisible hand way. And people don't appreciate that. And that lack of appreciation, you know, fits in with um, collectivist political attitudes. So I do think that plays a role here. Um, yeah, in the, and it, and it kind of relates to atavisms because in the band you had, there was much more of a familiarity and people knew who they were benefiting and they knew who they were benefiting from. And there was a sort of, you know, personalness to things. And so I think that the attitude um, of, that, 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 that has real such trouble accepting and appreciating the benefits of free markets, um, in a sense, flows from that same kind of atavistic instinct or blindness, I might even say. Well, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for. Um, if, you, if you would like to read Professor Daniel Klein's article in Economic Affairs, um, you can subscribe to the journal uh, by clicking the link in the show notes. Um, I thought that was a fascinating conversation uh, and I hope you did as well. Um, join us again next week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the IA podcast on Podbean, Spotify or Apple. We also upload our podcast on our YouTube channel, IEA London. If you want to help contribute to the IEA's digital output, please support us on Patreon, where you can benefit from exclusive... Me-